is Meredith from Austinesque Reviews. And this is Angie. And this is Jackie. And you are about to listen to our Skype interview during Austinesque Extravaganza. Today, Team Austinesque has the very special opportunity to interview best-selling author Deborah Whitesmith. Deborah is the author of the Austin series, as well as many other fiction series and nonfiction works. There are more than one million copies of her books in print, and she is currently the featured relationship specialist on the new Fox News radio show, Plain Jane Wisdom. Thank you so much, Deborah, for coming out today and talking to us. Thank you for having me. You have a very pretty accent. I can sit here and listen to you talk. <laughs> no, you guys are the ones with the accent. This is the way uh, standard English sounds. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. There's a comedian who says that there are um, different um that, you know, not all Southern accents sound the same. And it's true because my mom has got a real Kentucky drawl, real the Judds. And oh, yeah, it's different. And I was infuriated uh, for years uh, when I was a teenager and Dallas was on. And um, JR did not have did not have a Texas accent. He had a Georgian accent. <laughs> and it was very obvious to anybody in the South that he had the wrong accent on. But uh, nobody else knew, so oh well. <laughs> Love with her characters and uh, her plots are, you know, just reflective of a slow-paced English society. But those characters just zinged, and I was very intrigued by her from the onset. Awesome. Um, so your thesis—you said it was on the heroes of Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility. What kind of angle did you? talk about these heroes sometimes i can just play de devil's advocate on some things a lot of times i guess i try to look for angles that haven't been explored and things that haven't been said and you know it's uh, debated among scholars about darcy whether or not he's uh, you know if he's really rude or or those kinds of things and i just dug into uh to pride and prejudice and i came out believing that darcy by nature was shy and mm -hmm. that he came across arrogant and rude, when in reality he's trying to cover just the shyness within. And I came across, believe, I came across with kind of a jaded view of Colonel Brandon, actually, because I, um, I believe that um, sense and sensibility of the text indicates that multiple places that he really isn't in love with Mary Ann, that he really is in love with this former young lady that he fell in love with. And the only reason why he is uh, intrigued with Marianne is because she reminds him of his former love. And of course, that's the secondary, uh, that's the secondary hero and heroine in that. But anyway, uh, those are just some observations I made. Interesting. So when you first, um, you read Jane Austen in school, what uh, you liked the, um, the country setting and, and the, and the families, um, what was the first book that you read by her? Yeah, I read Pride and Prejudice, and then the other four of her titles I, I encountered on my own. Once I finished my bachelor's degree and I entered my master's degree program, from the start of it, I kept thinking, man, I wish this was a creative writing degree so that I could just take 
one of Jane Austen's novels and do a creative spinoff, you know, uh, for my, for my thesis, for my final project. And of course I wasn't able to do that, but I had that desire to do that. I was able to do that after my writing career took off and I was, I found a publisher who was interested in that idea. And sure enough, I was able to do it, but instead of just doing it for Pride and Prejudice or Sense and Sensibility, I was able to do it for all six of her major work. For anyone who doesn't know, we're talking about the Austin series right now. And that's where you kind of um, wrote a modern adaptation of each of Jane Austen's novels was so were you originally planning that when you first approached this project, that it would be all six novels? Yes, that's how I proposed it to the publisher, all six. They accepted that and uh, were, were very excited about the possibility. And, you know, one of the things, um, since I'm a Christian author, one of the things I wanted to do was pull out the, the latent Christian themes that are in the Jane Austen, the original Jane Austen novels, because Jane Austen was a clergyman's daughter. And so those values are there in the novels. They're integrated into the novels. And I was able to catapult on that and pull out, you know, pull out those latent values into, uh, into the modern context. So uh, there, since the publisher that I was approaching was a Christian publisher, they were just delighted with that possibility. I love that you did all six novels because as much as I love Pride and Prejudice, it's great to see novels like... Emma and Northanger Abbey also have some Austin-inspired works written about them. And my favorite, my favorite uh, book of my whole series is um, North Point Chalet. It's based on Northanger Abbey. I I love that book just because it is. Uh, I just love the heroine, even though I'm the one that created her. <laughs> well, I. <laughs> Jane Austen created her, essentially her prototype, and then I, I did a spinoff of that. But uh, the heroine just is delightful to me. I, I, I just love her. And every time, even if I, even though I wrote North, North Point Chalet, if I were to open it up and read some excerpts, I, uh, I'll laugh. I make myself laugh just because she's so zany and so um, just, you know, a scatterbrain and such a lover of the dark you know, dark mysteries and trying to, you know, she's going to have a mystery, even if she has to create one herself, which she does. And, and uh, you know, just bungles along through life and with her polka dotted toenails. And um, I just really, I don't know. I just was enchanted by that heroine. Um, so she is my, that's my favorite. It's a, it's a funny mystery is what it is. And uh, can't hardly can't beat that. You know, <laughs> you have to get the mystery element, the suspense and the humor. And yeah, you even wrote, um, I see other novels you've written that have mystery and intrigue in them. Deborah, what are some of the examples that you see in Austin's work that are directly influenced by her dad being a clergyman? Oh, um, her attitude, their attitude toward, um, for instance, in Pride and Prejudice, uh, and my book is uh, First Impressions, and that was actually Jane Austen's first title for that book, by the way. Um, when um, the younger sister runs away and has that uh, affair, that scandalous affair with uh, with uh, Wickham, um, you know, the whole family is just up in arms over it. Uh, the little sister is not. 
Um, she's just kind of out there, and Wickham's not ashamed of anything. But that whole attitude toward the affair, toward them going off, toward the premarital sex and all of that that's related to that, uh, the, the whole family attitude is one that is um, that they were saying that that is not okay um, in the sense that they were not happy that she did this. That's all from a Christian worldview, that they would not approve of her, you know, uh, having uh, an affair out of marriage, having uh, sexual relations out of marriage. Um, the fact that they all, you know, they, they went to church, they were, um, they participated in uh, that belief system. Also, that uh, they, she speaks highly of clergymen in a general sense, she does. Um, and just those kinds of, the, the author's voice on behavior from a Christian worldview that would be called sin, um, those things. Uh, and, and, you know, and Jane Austen never comes out and says, and now from this worldview, I will say this. No, she doesn't. It's just ingrained into the text. And you can, uh, if, if you know what to look for, it's there. Yeah, I read a book where they um, they talk about how morality is just everywhere in Austen. And through her social commentary, she's really guiding her readers into correct um, moral beliefs. Yes, it's it's very, very uh, clear and very strong. And also just the fact, even um, we're talking about Pride and Prejudice again, but even just from Pride and Prejudice, when her, her standards um, as a woman, and, and you need to understand in her society in that time, women did, did not have the legal right to inherit property. It all, always went to the male, the eldest male heir. Well, if if uh, there is no eldest, if there's no brother within that pack of kids <laughs> within the family, how, how else can I say that? If there's no brother within the family, so if Elizabeth doesn't have a brother, then um, that whole estate is going to go to the next male relative, the closest male relative, and all, and all those daughters are overlooked. So Elizabeth pretty much, if her parents were to have died, she would have been homeless. And, and, uh, now they can inherit, they can inherit an income, but they could not inherit property. So in order to survive in that society, she needed to get married. And so you have the most eligible bachelor in the world, you, uh, in Darcy, who initially proposes to her and she has the audacity and the strength of character and, and the feistiness to turn him down. And what that says is that her, value system is not on material things her value system for um for a mate is for uh someone that she she can say that she truly loves and that loves her in return uh, of course it's just a fiasco you know and she really hurts his feelings the one woman all these women are after him, the one woman he wants is telling him to drop dead you have the the opposite of that with charlotte lucas who marries mr collins and, and it kind of puts Charlotte Lucas in a more sympathetic light when you understand that she, these women were homeless, essentially. You know, she was, she needed to find a husband. And that's why the mother, that's why Mrs. Bennett is so desperate for her daughters to get married. I mean, it's, it's a desperate situation to be in in that era in society. And so you have, uh, Charlotte Lucas who marries not for love. And not for that value, but for um, 
for a livelihood. And Elizabeth is strong enough a character and has strong enough values. And I hate to use that. I hate to say the word values because that's really not what, I don't know. I'll come up with another word in a minute, but uh, strong enough beliefs in love, I guess, that she absolutely refuses to marry just for a livelihood. But when you think about how desperate they were, you know, you you have to, on another level, be somewhat sympathetic toward these women who did marry like Charlotte did because um, because they were in a bad place. And Charlotte didn't exactly have a long line of suitors in her wake. And that's why I hate to use the word values there because um, it's not necessarily a moral issue. It's just a dilemma of women in that society. And so um, I, I've said a long version of that um, Austin is making all kinds of, st of statements. And we talked about her making a statement of morality, but she's also making a statement of if you're truly, if, if you're truly a woman who really knows who you are and, and knows yourself, then you won't throw yourself out there that you will wait. And it's better to go have to live with a relative than to be tied to somebody that you really can't respect or love, even if it means that you don't have a home. And that is pretty uh, strong for that era in society. Um, let's get back to the Austin series because it's a modern adaptation. Um, was it challenging to find ways to make Jane Austen's work still speak with the same themes in modern times? Was there one novel that was um, maybe more particularly challenging to update than the others because of things like, you know, um, you know, the land, it, the land going um, just to sons, like stuff like that. That's not uh, part of our world today. Well, um, I did, I just didn't go there. Our laws in our modern and now, and, and these are all set in the United States, except one is set in Australia, but our laws now are so far removed from that, that I just did not use those, that theme right there. What I did use, um, was, you know, for instance, with, again, with Pride and Prejudice and, and writing First Impression was just that strong character and that uh, she's committed to, you know, um, not marrying just because because the guy has a lot, tons of money. And, and she's a lawyer. Um, she's just, you know, she's young. She doesn't have a lot of money at this point. So, you know, not marrying for just because he's rich and famous and women are throwing themselves at him and she is not going to succumb to that. Just that strength of character. Um, so I, what I did in translating from, you know, 1800 England to the 21st century um, United States was, is I took the elements that could translate successfully and I just did not, if they would not, um, you know, if I were to retell it in 1800 America, um, that, that may have translated, but if you can't, you just can't. And so I, I, I try to tell everyone that these books that I did in the Jane Austen fiction series are spinoffs of Jane Austen. They are not replicated exact retellings. That was not the reason I did them. I did them as spinoffs. And so there were things that I just did not include because now I'm the author on this and because I didn't want to, you know, there, I mean, I can do that. I'm the one writing the story. Okay. This time. That's right. Your story's now. You can do what you want to do. <laughs> I did really rely heavily on her characters and on her general plot lines. 
But as far as some of those themes, you know, I just I just did what what worked. And there were times when I the story took a little bit of a different turn, and I let it um, while still staying, you know, while still coming back. You know, it's kind of like being out on a country road, and you go off on a little dog on a little dog trail, and uh, a little trail to the side, but you come back to that main story. And that little trail may not have even been in one of Jane Austen's works, but hey, this is Deborah White's mystery tale, so it wasn't mine. So that's how I. Uh, that's how I handled all that. Your favorite is the Northanger Abbey one, um, North, Pen- North Point Chalet. What would be the one that was the hardest for you to write? I'm going to say probably Amanda. I'm sitting here looking at them, trying to remember. It's been a while since I wrote them. I'm going to say Amanda because Amanda is set in um, Australia. Mm. And I did that just for fun. Um and I did, and so I've never been to Australia, so I had to kind of rely on a friend who lived there. I just knew an author who I just knew lived there, and she read through it and gave me input, you know, in it. But I think because to some degree I felt like I was stabbing in the dark a little bit. Um, I don't even remember why I decided to set it in Australia, just because, probably because I thought it would be fun, you know, <laughs> be like visiting a country you've never been to and so it would be different so uh that is that one probably i remember um i remember struggling a little bit because when you know it's hard enough to write an all in a city you've never been into in the united states uh let alone a whole country a whole different country and that's why a lot of times i make up cities <laughs> make up towns because <laughs> if you make up a town in a novel, any novel, then it's in your head and nobody else has been there. And nobody <laughs> that that street really isn't there or that, you know, this, that the fire station's really on the other side of town or any of that kind of little stuff that you can mess up. I am very realistic in my novels. I have a tendency to write in a way that will have people hold them. It's like a mirror looking at yourself, you know, examine your heart. Um, challenging people with some harder themes and being very realistic in my approach to my characters as well as the issues that they are dealing with. I'm not a, I'm a very, I'm, I've been called realistic multiple times. I'm, I'm just not a soft, fluffy read kind of author, um, a feel good author, um, a warm fuzzy, you know, that makes you kind of, you, you get warm after reading one of my novels and it makes you kind of cry at the end, but you know, you walk away and you just had a feel good experience. My stuff is a little probably even edgy sometimes for Christian fiction because all of my characters don't start out. Even my main characters, they're not perfect and they are not, they make mistakes they make big mistakes. And then what I do is, is, is if you encounter the Bible, you know that that is a collection of stories about people who blow it. And there's no soft selling how they blow it. What happens is, is, is that the Bible just shows the results of what happens when you blow it. And so you have usually uh, negative consequences, but you also have God's grace in the midst of that. And so I present characters who may blow it. Um, and then I show God's grace in that as well as, you know, the consequences of them dealing with it. Um and for instance, you know, there's a story of Judas betraying Christ uh, before his crucifixion. I mean, the, he went out and hung himself for crying out loud. Um, the consequence 
consequences of betrayal are, you know, just that story alone. The consequences of betrayal are um, horrendous upon the psyche of someone who does that. So that will tell a reader, don't be betraying somebody, you know. And so those are some of my goals is that I, I lay out the um, I lay out the characters and the stories in a way that the reader can see the fallout and hopefully relate to the characters because they're more realistic kind of characters. Um, and then, cause the characters are flawed as well, just like we are and hopefully relate to those characters in a way that you come away thinking, wow, I learned something I've thought in a way I haven't thought before. Um, and I don't want to do what this character has done. None of my heroes are the perfect hero they are usually flawed. They have issues. They have problems. And my heroines do too. Um, and um, that's on purpose for me. Um, I, I want my I want my stuff to be very realistic. Because if I can't reflect reality, and even though I mean, that sounds like an oxymoron that I would to so strongly reflect reality in a novel, which is not real it's made up but you know but it, but actually that is my goal is is to reflect the reality of what it what it is and as a christian um how we deal with our own flaws in the light of god's grace and how we can turn to him and uh find his forgiveness and his mercy and his redemption even when we have royally messed up we also see in your nonfiction works, you touch upon a lot about um, marriage and relationships. Uh, a couple of your titles include Romancing Your Husband and 101 Ways to Romance Your Marriage. And um, your Jane Austen-related book on this topic is What Jane Austen Taught Me About Love and Romance, which I really did love when I read it. Um, what um, drew you to write about love and relationships and and um, write nonfiction books about them? Well, um, that was the whole nonfiction thing uh, just opened up for me miraculously. I had started publishing some novels, selling novels in 97, and I was at a women's retreat, a church-related women's retreat, and I was sitting there in the audience. And um, I felt like I just had this very strong thought that I felt like came from God. And the thought was, you're going to be speaking at this retreat and at retreats like this. I just thought, well, I just prayed, Lord, if that is your will, then you're going to have to open up the door for me to you're going to have to open up the door for me to write some nonfiction because all of these women are writing nonfiction books. I'm just writing novels here and they are all writing nonfiction books. And so you're going to have to um, give me a nonfiction book and then uh, show me, you know, what you want me to write and then drop a publisher in my lap because it's insanely hard to break in to the novel writing industry, let, let alone to cross over and write nonfiction as well at the same time for crying out loud. And so what happened was God gave me a book idea and it was called more than Ruby's becoming a woman of godly influence. And it's about the relationship of a woman in her home um, and, and the powerful impact of a woman in her home. And um, 
present that in a way that does not present the woman in her home as a secondary influence or a subordinated influence, but as a powerful force, which is what God intended her to be through the power of love, not dominating, but just love and influence and um, as a, as an equal partner with her husband. And that was the message that I felt like God wanted me to present. And so I had this book I started working on in my head and I mean, it wasn't very long until actually a publisher approached me. And so I felt like God just pieced those pieces of that puzzle together himself and uh, brought me into a relationship with that publisher. And then one thing led to another. And um, I was praying about my marriage. I had already done maybe a couple of more nonfiction books with that publisher. And so I was praying about my marriage. And uh, the Lord began to lead me to romance my husband um, in a way that is, is detailed in the book, Romancing Your Husband. And I began to do those things that are in that book. And after it was over, it revolutionized my marriage. And after it was over, I really felt like the Holy Spirit just impressed me to write the book. So I put together a book proposal and took it to my publisher, uh, Harvest House Publishers, and they flipped over it, loved it. It became a bestseller. It was um, in the Gold Medallion Award finalist for that year that it was out, which is just a huge honor to even be in the finalist category. You know, it's an internationally recognized award. And um, it just uh, really banged in the market. And then, um, you know, then other things just, you know, it just kind of catapults on itself at that point. So the publisher wants me to do Romance in Your Wife and 101 Ways to Romance Your Marriage. And so you just ride the tide of that, that exposure and that, that reader buy-in. And now Romance in Your Husband went out of print a couple of years ago. And now the publisher is actually re-releasing it in January. And I don't have that new uh, cover out on my website yet. I will get that up for too much longer. But. And it's re-releasing, and um, the new cover should be up at christianbook.com and amazon.com and those kinds of places. Um, but I'm excited about that because when that book released, my husband and I had been married. When I wrote it, we had been married 16 years. Um, so I guess we'd been married about 16 or 17 years when it released, and now we've been married uh, nearly 30 years. Talking about marriages and successful um, and happy marriages there are maybe some couples at the end of Jane Austen novels that readers and scholars in the past have commented on maybe uh, doubting their future happiness and and success you know um, I think amongst them sometimes it's questioned about Henry and Catherine or Marianne and Colonel Brandon, um, since you are researched and, and do a lot with um, successful marriages and relationships, what uh, couples of Jane Austen do you think are going to end up um, happily or in which ones might have a little bit or which ones might need to read your books eventually? <laughs> Well, I have to say that I really do believe that Jane Austen genuinely intended for her the first tier of her main hero and heroine, uh, uh, the hero and heroines, her, um, heroes and heroines. Thank you. I do believe that she intended to imply that they would end up 
in a long-term happy marriage. I think the probably the number one couple that I think might appear on the surface to be a potential for a happy marriage probably, and you already said, uh, Colonel Brandon and Mary Ann, I have some skepticism about them. Big skepticism about Lydia and Wickham. I think they're just a couple of selfish babies who uh, will probably uh, probably stay together because that, that was the norm in that society. But that, you know, I, I can't imagine them being uh, long-term mature enough to be in a stable stable relationship at all. And I think those are the main ones that come to mind right now. I think that Darcy and Elizabeth will have a fantastic marriage. I just, uh, to me, they just pop the most. And I think probably that's probably the reason why Pride and Prejudice is her most well-known novel, uh, because Darcy and Elizabeth are such strong characters and because they um, are just like magnet and steel and there's so much undercurrent of sexual tension with them that I think that they have, they're strong enough in their character and in their personalities that they would uh, probably have a very long, very successful marriage. Um, let's just say that um, Mr. and Mrs. Bennett come to you, Deborah, for advice. First off is when she's trying to get her daughters all married off and he's hiding in his, library what kind of advice would you give them those two people need therapy bad (laughs) (laughs) they need counseling and i would tell them to run not walk to the nearest counselor uh, and get some help he has no respect for her whatsoever and she does some things that lend themselves to uh, uh breeding disrespect i would say when you understand the culture that they were in i've already touched on this with her you know, running amok, trying to get all these girls married off, and him almost indifferent to it all, um, a mocking kind of presence. Um, when you understand that, it puts her in a much more sympathetic light. Because on the surface, she just seems like this annoying person who's immature and flighty, and I think that's why Lydia, Lydia and, the, and the Austin actually station that Lydia takes after her mother, um, and that's where Lydia gets some of that. But um, when you understand uh, why she's so desperate, it kind of puts him in a, you know, a little harder light. Um, And I think that he could do with a heavy dose of respect for his wife and that she could do with um, a heavy dose of maturity and uh, that they both could seriously use several counseling sessions, probably for several years, to try to get them uh, get their marriage needs to be. Well, give me, um, give us an example of what was, what would be one thing you would whisper to Mrs. Bennett to romance Mr. Bennett? Uh, uh, knock him upside the head. <laughs> <laughs> no, I would say seriously, I would tell her just to slow down and, uh, quit talking, quit, you know, Quit the nagging, quit the talking, um, slow down and try to get in his space and find out what makes him tick. Uh, and uh, uh, just try to get to know her man. And, you know, that would probably breed more respect out of him than anything if she would take the time to do that. What would you tell him to do for her? I 
would tell him to um, do a better job of taking his wife's concerns seriously and to listen to her and to understand that even though she may look flighty, she really has her daughter's best interest at heart and that he needs to take seriously the plight that his daughters are in. We would love to maybe have you share an excerpt from one of your novels, if you'd like, um, since they are out of print and, you know, since um, they were um, published several years ago, maybe many of our uh, listeners have not had the pleasure of reading the, um, the Austin series yet. So maybe we could whet their appetite and uh, show them what your writing is about. Do you have an excerpt you would like to share? I most certainly do. And I'm just going to read out of um, North Point Chalet and um, just going to read from the start of it because I love the way that it opens. It opens with uh, actually a quote from Edgar Allan Poe because Kathy Moore loves Edgar Allan Poe because he scares her and that's what she likes more than he's scared. And um, here we go. It might have been midnight or perhaps earlier or later, for I had taken no note of time when a sob, low, gentle, but very distinct, startled me from my revelry. My reverie. I felt that it came from the bed of ebony, the bed of death. I listened in an agony of superstitious terror, but there was no repetition of the sound. I strained my vision to detect any motion in the corpse. But there was not the slightest perceptible. Yet, I could not have been deceived. I had heard the noise, however faint, and my whole soul was awakened within me as I resolutely and per perseveringly kept my attention riveted upon the body. I felt my brain reel, my heart cease to beat, my limbs grow rigid where I sat. Kathy Moore relished the tremors penetrating her soul. She had read everything Edgar Allan Poe had written so many times, she'd lost track of the number. But each time she read the passage from Ligia, delightfully creepy goosebumps spanned her body. The flickering candle on her nightstand provided the only light in the shadow bedroom. She promised herself years ago she'd never read Poe unless the lights were off and a candle was on. The effect was beyond exhilarating. To make matters even more gratifying, an unexpected, boom, an unexpected boom of thunder rattled the dilapidated apartment's windows. Kathy jumped and yelped as a flash of lightning extinguished the room's thick darkness. She blinked and, in the aftermath of momentary blindness, was almost certain her drapes billowed with the imprint of a person hidden and waiting. An invader, fumbling to free himself from the curtain's bondage. Just like Ligia, she thought. Kathy scooted deeper under the sheets and bit the fresh-smelling linens to stop the scream. Her eyes wide, she clutched her book and commanded herself to scramble on the other side of the bed, away from the intruder. But her body refused to cooperate. She was stranded in the clutches of living rigor mortis. A gust of wind whistled around the aging building. The apartment, nestled atop Kathy's bookstore, groaned like a soul, tormented from ancient of days. The drapes fiercely surged. I must have left the windows open. The window open. The practical thought both disappointed and comforted. Then Kathy remembered shutting and locking the window before 
donning her satin pajamas and crawling into bed. Both comfort and disappointment plummeted. Kathy glanced toward her telephone sitting on the nightstand on the other side of her bed. The shadow distance between her and the phone stretched into an insurmountable charm. I'm sorry, chasm. Too difficult to span for a terrified soul trapped by rigid terror. And then it goes on. And um, um, she winds up um, uh, encountering her hero. Soon, the man halted outside Kathy's window. Frantically, he waved toward Kathleen. A flash of lightning highlighted a drenched masculine face beneath the hood. Her mo- and she's talking to her mother on the phone now. Her mother's voice fading into the distance. Kathy glanced to the left, then to the right. Me, she mouthed, and rested her index finger against her chest. She looked down at her black satin pajamas and recalled the lecture her mother had given her about standing in front of open windows at night. The man waved more wildly. A hint of warning is suggested she should close the curtains and let the guy find another man to help him if he was really in need. But a tide of anxiety insisted the poor guy might catch uh, pneumonia and die before he could find any help on this deserted street. Kathy was the only, I'm sorry, y'all. Kathy's was the only store that featured an apartment above it. The rest of the small town's merchants had long ago gone home for the evening. Just a minute, Mom, Kathy said. I think I've got an emergency here. What? What's going on? Michelle interrogated. Just a minute, Kathy repeated. I don't know. Don't hang up, okay? Not waiting on her mother's response, Kathy dropped the phone onto the pile of clothes on her dresser. It slammed into the bathroom's doorknob. Kathy unlatched the window and flung it outward. A blast of wind whipped a sheet of rain into her face and squealed. Hello up there, the harsh weather broke up the man's distressed voice, but Kathy managed to understand his message. Sorry, phone, car broke down, left cell, home. Okay, meet me at the front of the store, Kathy screamed over a receding roll of thunder. The man waved and moved down the sidewalk. As Kathy snapped the window closed and relocked it, she recalled her father's admonition from the day she got her driver's license. Remember, Kathy. Don't be stopping on the side of the road to help out any men. Sometimes guys set up traps for ladies. If a man is really in trouble, he can deal with it himself or wait for another man. I know you well, and there's no need for you to risk getting attacked because your heart is bigger than your head. And I'll stop there. Uh, But that is how Kathy meets her hero. He comes in drenched and needing help, and it all started on a dark and stormy night. Gotta go read it now. <laughs> the best romances always start on a dark and stormy night. <laughs> Thank you so much, Deborah, for um, agreeing to do this and for being a part of Austinesque Extravaganza. It was such a special treat to have the opportunity to talk to you and, and ask our questions, and we're we're very grateful for the time. Okay, it's been great to talk to you ladies. Thank you so much. And I learned a little bit about the sky business. <laughs> okay, all right. Thank you, Deborah. We appreciate it. Thank you. God bless.